0: Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Today, I'm joined by a man whose accent I admire almost as much as his knife skills. He got a start as a young boy in the French countryside, apprenticing at some small kitchens and then some very large kitchens. He went on to cook for Charles de Gaulle, going on to become one of the most iconic stars on food television, along with Julia Child. He's written more than a dozen cookbooks, including the seminal 1976 tome La Technique, Uh, And somehow through it all, he has maintained his grasp on the good things in life and continues to remind us to this day of the importance of a well-cooked meal. He is Jacques Pepin. Welcome to the show, Jacques. Thank you. It's a frigid day out there. I woke up this morning, it was 16 degrees here in New York City.
1: Right. Yes, it is very cold and um, I wanted, uh, last week I was cooking with my granddaughter. I'm doing something with my granddaughter. And I was waiting for snow because I wanted to show her how to do candy in the snow that I used to do for ah. her, her mother, you know, Claudine, when she was small. I used to do a caramel, go outside, and throw it in the snow, you know, with a spoon to make candy. Uh, that was fun for the kid.
0: Very fun. What, now, As a, as a young chef back in... Back in France in the 1950s, what, what might have you been putting on a stove on a, on a day like this when it's really cold out? Oh,
1: soup, certainly. Soup is always uh, welcome at my house. I mean, even in summer, but certainly there at that time, a lot of poultry. So, yeah, yeah soup, stew, that uh, type of thing.
0: Right, I, I have a soup question because I, I like to cook and I'm, a, I, I guess, a decent home cook. But soup is one of those things that, that evades me. Every time I make soup— it doesn't have that depth of flavor that I want. It it, oh. it feels like the it's never the sum of its parts. It never comes together.
1: I don't think. That, I, I mean, for me, soup is the most essential type of food and. Out of all the soup, probably the one my wife called fridge soup, <laughs> which whatever is left over in the refrigerator. Yes, I, I, I do that or from the sample like my daughter loved and my granddaughter now, soup au vermicelle, which my mother used to do, which is really chicken broth too with uh, a slice of uh, uh, scallion or, or, or uh, leek in it and then some vermicelli, you know, some uh, thin thread pasta. Uh, you know those are very comforting type of things, and uh, we do that regularly at
0: home. Yes. Can you can you make a good soup without chicken stock? Oh yes. So like, what's what's the technique if I have no good homemade chicken stock around? What 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 should I be doing?
1: Well, you can do it just with water. I mean, it's perfectly fine. I do a great deal of those. Uh, you can or you can or not uh, stew the vegetable. I mean, my mother would do a soup like that with basically water and uh, a leek or whatever.
0: You were you were born in in nineteen thirty five, uh, in Lyon near Lyon.
1: Uh, in Bourg-en-Bresse, near yeah. Lyon, yes. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, so that meant you grew up during World War Two, right? And 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 talk about that in terms of ingredients and what you had at what you could use back then in terms of how plentiful or not plentiful food was well, in those years. It
1: wasn't plentiful at all, but I mean the. The point is that, for me, it was the way life was. I didn't realize the before and after, so you don't miss. If you don't take a shower every day, like only <laughs> once a week, well, you don't miss it. You never took yeah. a shower every day. Anyway, and many, many things. Uh, in fact, someone was talking to me about that. My mother apparently told me that I loved chocolate. When I was uh, one years old, too, I had chocolate uh, the first time or whatever. And, but I don't remember. The war came and I forgot. First time I remember chocolate was by the GI throwing chocolate to us when they liberated uh, my hometown. So, you actually
0: remember that? You always hear stories about American GIs throwing chocolate bars at kids.
1: Candy bar. I remember the shrimp gum because we used it for probably a month. You know, give it to my brother, (laughs) dig it to a front, give it back to me. (laughs) Yeah, that was another world.
0: It's interesting. Nowadays, uh, we hear a lot about using every piece of the vegetable. Guys like Dan Barber at Blue Hill did uh, that Wasted program right. where, like, hey, let's let's w- stop wasting so much food. Right. Um, but when you were growing up, that was that was just cooking. You had to use everything, right?
1: Well, it's still now. I mean, uh, I am extremely uh, miserly in the kitchen, probably due to my upbringing. But uh, I've been married for 50 years to a woman born in New York City from a Puerto Rican mother and a Cuban father. Well, when we got married in 1966, uh, she wasn't too, uh, certainly too uh, too economic in the kitchen. And uh, I remember I would cook something and I go on the road for a couple of days, come back and there is another thing and the food is pushed in the back of the refrigerator and we get into those stupid arguments. Why didn't you finish this? (laughs) So... You know, when I get home, everything is clean in the refrigerator. I don't even want to know what she does with it. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, for me, it's uh, it's uh, visceral, you know. I mean, I cannot throw out. Uh, and even when I was a kid, if my father threw a piece of bread, it really get hard, he had to kiss it first. And when he threw it out, he threw it to the chicken anyway, so... Do you, you make? Know, do you? So.
0: Do you uh, what do you do with your your a half done loaf of bread? Do you
1: oh, there are hundreds of things we do uh, with it, from uh, doing a regular onion soup to doing crouton for one thing, uh, to doing bread crumb to do it.
0: Yeah, we use it in many many things. Bread I pudding, think. perhaps if it's not yeah, too bread old. pudding
1: too. I freeze yeah. it. Uh, we keep it. Oh, you yeah, freeze sure. it well. Wow. Oh yeah,
0: I remember watching you one time on TV, and this was. It was such an elemental thing, but it sort of struck me you cracked an egg and then you use your finger to scoop out the white inside the yeah, shell. that was right. sort of that kind of hangs onto the shell. Yeah. and I had never done that before, but there's yeah. actually a lot of white left in there.
1: Yes, especially a very fresh eggs, and uh, if it's cold, then uh, some of the white tend to cling to the inside of the shell
0: you know so what uh what did you what did you not have access to during the war years? What I didn't have? Yeah. uh,
1: Well, I realized what I didn't have after the war when we started. In fact, when I started in apprenticeship, it was 1949. It wasn't that long after the war. And still, the food were becoming pretty plentiful. But still, uh, people don't realize that two years after the war in France, we still used rationing tickets to buy certain type of thing. It's not like the war was over and uh, all of a sudden everything was plentiful. It took over two years, you know, for the meat, butter to stop the rationing and uh, buying it. So for me, everything was new because I didn't remember pre-war So I thought things were, and at that time, of course, I had my mother at a small restaurant in Lyon, and uh, my brother and I, prior to going to school, before school, in the morning at seven o'clock, go to the market with her. We didn't have any refrigeration. It didn't exist. She had an ice box, so she bought a block of ice every day. That block of ice, she bought some fish and some meat, and that was it. At the end of the day, that. Ice had melted. The fish and the meat had to be used. All the vegetables had to be used, and the day after went to the market, start again. So everything was local. Everything was organic. Well, the word organic did not exist really. So <laughs> the local the uh, didn't exist. So you know, everything was uh, yes, it was like that every day, which was really hard work to do. But so now we're going back to the type of principle, like. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, you know, as we say. The
0: more things change, the more things stay the same. uh, You also also wrote in your your book, The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen, which was reissued recently. Uh, It's a wonderful memoir. I I read it back when it came out in 2004. If you have a chance to read it, I I urge you listeners to. It's an incredibly charming book. Um, But you also talk about foraging, something else that is also very popular and hip these days. You would forage for mushrooms and all sorts of stuff, Oh, absolutely. I
1: still do. I mean, in Connecticut. and and now I have a little bit of. Uh, competition but still not (laughs) much but in France when you go at uh, six o'clock five six o'clock in the morning in summer along the road you see a car stop it's either some lover making it out in the car or people (laughs) who go mushrooming one or the other you know so yes mushrooming was part of uh, it's certainly part of my memory part of my smell and taste memory you know as I said I go in a wood now with my dog uh without thinking about anything in particular. Uh, all of a sudden, I smell you know those wild mushrooms, and I am eight years old again, mushrooming with my brother and and uh, father, you know so those memories stay with you
0: It's interesting nowadays, you know kids grow up with a a image of chefs as you know uh his men and women on t v with tattoos and t v deals, uh, yeah, yes. deals and book deals and And all that as a kid growing up in france in the 40s and 50s what what, what was your image of a chef what what were chefs like in your mind
1: oh it was certainly quite different i mean uh, i was excited by going into that trade because my mother had worked with a chef my mother was never you know professionally trained or classically trained but she had uh, five or six restaurants you know and so actually i count seven restaurants in my family owned by seven women I'm the first male to go into that business in my family. And still is the case in France. But she talked to me about a chef that she worked with who traveled on boat all over the world. has kind of inflamed my imagination. And at that point, as a child, you know, in my 10 I mean, I was 14, 15 years old, uh, I... Um, I never thought that I could be, I don't know, a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. It was so far from my family structure. My father was a cabinet maker, my mother, at uh, a cook in a restaurant, so it was one or the other. Yeah. And, and you, it left, you left.
0: You left school at age thirteen or so yes. to, to become yeah. an apprentice, right? I
1: uh, passed the final exam, you know, for primary school when I was uh, thirteen, and I went into apprenticeship. Yes.
0: And at apprenticeship, um, in in bresse in a right. hotel, and That's you it. and you wrote that you you worked seven days a week.
1: Yes, there was no day off. We worked seven days a week, and at the end of the week, at the end of the month, they gave you four days for the four weeks in the month. Actually, there is more than four weeks. In the month, yeah. but we had four days <laughs> of which I had to take the bus and uh, bring my, uh, my tuck, you know my hat and, and clothes and uh, the, the, the sheet of my bed, all of that to my mother to wash to bring back. So we had three towels. and I tell you, we take care of it, too, <laughs> especially if we were not paid. You know, so uh
0: so you, so you did not get paid while you were an apprentice. We will not get paid and so, I
1: never asked one cent to my parents. I used I, to do go...
0: we need to tell the millennials about this. So you <laughs> right. work seven days a week, you don't get paid, no. and, and you say thank you.
1: <laughs> you say thank you because they said the, the generation before me used to pay to be able to learn, you know. Wow. And uh, as I said we went to pick up from mushroom to watercress to Lily of the Valley for the first time and we sell that. And that was enough. Uh, and a few other things that I get a tip here and there. I took care of the dog for the owner. So enough tip to go to the movie occasionally and to pay for the bus to go back every month. But I mean, it sounds like very hard, but it wasn't because the other apprentices were like me. It was the way life was. It was perfectly fine.
0: Do you remember the first time you went to Paris?
1: Yes, I remember because I told my mother I have a job in Paris too, which I didn't. (laughs) But I knew a friend. I took my suitcase and I arrived at Gare de Lyon in Paris. I was 17, Um, and uh, I didn't have. Of course, there was no telephone at the time, and uh, so I had the address of one friend, and I carry my suitcase for hours and hours before I get to that address, asking people and knock at the door. He was there, the guy that I worked with in my apprenticeship. He was a few years older than me, and I think he was there with a young woman in his room. But I mean, he admitted me in, and I <laughs> slept on the floor. And the day after, we went to an organization called La Société des cuisiniers de Paris, Society of the Chef of Paris. Mm-hmm. Then I got a job, and I started the day after. You know, so. What, what then, was uh,
0: what was Paris like back then?
1: Paris in the 50s, well, that was was very exciting. And uh, it was, uh, well, this is the only Paris that I knew. You know, a great deal of Americans actually came to Paris at that time. Great excitement. Uh, You know, it was a time of uh, which I learned after I started studying a little bit in Paris, a time of existentialism, you know, Sartre, Camus. And uh, I used to go to the theater in Paris. Uh, you know, to the to the La Comédie Française, you know, the French theatre, as well as the opera comique, and uh, so the opera too. And it cost me less than what it would cost you to put a, a coin in a jukebox to play wow. a few bits of music. So there are subventions by the government, and it cost like uh, maybe a dollar at the time, maybe in price of now. You have to wait in line an hour and a half. So we end up going there. It was less expensive than the movie, yeah. and I got hooked. And eventually, uh, I keep going there and so forth. And uh,
0: Did you, did you, did not back in those days, did you go to Café de Flore? Was Oh what, yes, yeah.
1: absolutely. I work in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, so, you know, Café de Flore was pretty well known. Les Deux Magots, you know, were...
0: Both of which uh, are still there?
1: Which I think, and I work in La Rotonde, in Montparnasse, you know, across the street from La Coupole, and I remember... Uh, a guy telling me when I was working there, you see that guy sitting down, that famous writer, his name is Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, (laughs) big guy with his thick glasses reading a book and eating. He was there, maybe not every day, but a few times a week, so I didn't know he was anyway. All
0: right, so you're at the Plaza Athenae and and you always hear stories about... Chefs in France in the in the old days, the old school, and, and and was the chef was he was he throwing pots at you? Was he screaming at you? How hard was it in the kitchen back then?
1: Well, it was more in other restaurants like at La Rotonde in Montparnasse. There, the chef, the compère, was uh, yelling, kicking you in the, in the behind, and all that too. And other chefs did that. They thought it was a. Uh, a rite of passage, you know, they had Mm -hmm. to to do that, which fortunately they don't anymore. At the Plaza Athénée was much more organized. I mean, uh, the executive chef, Lucien Dia, was actually the brother of Louis Dia, who worked here in the 20s and 30s at the Ritz Carlton and wrote La Cuisine de Lucien Dia in America Mm -hmm. there. He's the one who invented La la Vichy Soise because they were from Vichy and his mother was doing that type of souk, and potato, so, which they used to of call so they started doing it. He had it in his book, actually, in New York. Louis Diaz, and that's why his brother did it in Paris at the Plaza Athenee. But otherwise, no one knew Vichy was in France. Yeah. It was purely American, you know, except in, in the Plaza Athenee in Paris. In any case, there we were 48 chefs in the kitchen. We were 100 in the any kitchen. Any women in the kitchen, or was with it all the, men back then? No. Well, there, there was women like fruitier for the fruit, for uh, cafeteria, for different type of uh, making the coffee. Was, and then, of course, the dishwasher. We were close to 100 in the in the kitchen and 48 chefs. And uh, yes, a, uh, a few women in the pastry department where they were like 18. So it was a big department, uh, the executive chef, then the sous chef, then all the chefs de partie, chief of each department, the sauce, garde-manger, and so forth. So like how
0: long, how long was a shift back then? What, what were your hours on a day? Oh no, the, day? the
1: hours were pretty good. Uh, the, the hours were still two shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start nine o'clock in the morning, finish at two, you're off from two to five, start from five to mm-hmm. 10. You know, so the first time that I had that one shift was when I worked at the Pavillon in New York, and that was like working half a day, you know. it was yeah. a, So you get, you,
0: you get off at 10 p.m. It's the mid-50s in Paris. What do you do at, at when you get off your shift? Well,
1: even more so, at some point, I was uh, chef de nuit, you know, night chef. So the night chef started at 6 o'clock at night. You finish at 2.30 in the morning. So at 2.30 in the morning, it's like going out of work at 6 o'clock. We go out, you know, so we go out from... S- 2.30 in the morning, we go out until 6, 6.30. Where did you go at that hour? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, Montmartre, uh, you know, Montparnasse, Montmartre, even on Champs-Élysées, everything was still up during uh, those wee hours of the night. The point is that in winter, we got to bed around 7 o'clock in the morning, it was still night, and got up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon to and go to work, and I think it was night. night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the sun is out for about an hour and a half in right. Paris in the wintertime. time. right. Uh, so you must you must look back fondly on those days, I imagine.
1: Yes, it was great fun. We didn't have much money, but uh, we walked the street and have fun and uh, in one way or the other.
0: But yet you decided to come to New York. Why?
1: Well, first to start with, yes, I was a chef in Paris, but you know, going out to dance in the, the caveau or the, the little place in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, you would invite a, a girl to dance. If they ask you, what do you do? even though I work at Maxime or the Plaza Athenee or Fouquet's or Murray's, which were a great place at the time, it was hard to say, well, I'm a cook there. I mean, on the social scale, that was quite low. You yeah. know? Uh, like now, any uh, good mother would want her child to marry the, a lawyer, a doctor, certainly not a cook. You know. Now, of course, we are genius. It's quite different.
0: <laughs> it, it's fascinating how, how different it is uh, you know, um, that Yeah, back then, Chefs were not celebrities. They, they were well, certainly not. No, you were on the other side of the divide.
1: Yes, and uh, you know, there was something uh, not reassuring but uh, comforting in, in the sense that you didn't have to affirm yourself. I mean, basically, at that time, you work in the kitchen, you conform. That's it. You work at the Plaza Athene to conform to do what the chef would. I would never have thought of cutting a tomato. You cut it one way, you know, with the peat underneath. I would never have thought of turning it the other way to slice mm-hmm. it the other way. Someone had done that. I said, why would you cut it this way? You know, I mean, you had, uh, there was no place to innovation. At that time, you learn how to do it and you do it this way. I never had recipe until I came to America when I worked for Howard Johnson. But uh, I could be... Uh, my eye closed. You put that souffle in front of me. I said, "That the souffle of the Plaza Attenant in Paris. That's the 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 striped bass of the Pavillon. That you could recognize the dish of the place you work in mm-hmm. through food memory. You know because that's what you try to achieve, conforming. You know which is now exactly the opposite. I want to sign that dish. Make sure that they know it's me who made it. You know so it's a very different way of uh, showing your food. You
0: know. So when you, when you came to New York, 1959, correct? And yes. and. Was New York like you thought it would be, or what was your impression?
1: New York was much more exciting than I ever thought it would be because I only came for a year or two to maybe learn the language or two. I mean, most people come to America for economic reason, mm-hmm. or religious reason, or racial reason, or political reason. You know, but usually economic reason. I didn't have any of this. I came here. I was doing quite well in in France, and uh, I thought I'd stay for a year, two years. Loved it. As soon as I came here, and never went back. You know, I've been here 55 (laughs) years. So, yes, it was another world, a freer world. I mean, uh, when I went to the Pavilion, uh, two days after I was here, and uh, the chef told me, "No, call me Pierre." I said, oh, "Wow!" In France, never—you know—it was still the social class in France was quite different than here. Then I went to Colombia. Then I started skiing. Then, uh, you know, all of this I would never have been able to do it in France. So, probably not.
0: Interesting. So. What, and so, and, but also, I think it was interesting in, in the in the 1960s in New York. There was also this golden age of French restaurants in New York yes, City. From La, Pavilion, La Caravelle, and then yes, and all those restaurants. And, and what was that like having that sort of camaraderie of, of French friends and, well, and it comrades? Well, it
1: was great. Uh, uh, and it was certainly... Uh, Chefs are very giving in, 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 in general. And, uh, you know, people will help you in the... And so the French uh, were very... dominant, yes, in the the world of cooking at that time, Uh, even though many, many of the French restaurants that I went to had menu totally in French, totally misspelled (laughs) with things which had nothing to do with French cooking, but everything else. I mean, there was no great Italian restaurant. Of course, there was great Italian restaurant, but not at the level of high class, the level of high class Chinese restaurant or, or Japanese restaurant or other restaurant. No, for some reason, any great restaurant had to be you know, continental or French, quote.
0: I was interesting, know, so. even when, when Sirio Maccioni, who was Italian, when he yeah, went to open his own restaurant, he opened La Serre, which sure. is a French restaurant, because you would but, never open an Italian restaurant. But
1: Sirio worked in the Plaza Atene in Paris, yeah. you know, uh, for me, so with, uh, with uh, Verger and so forth. So the old train, yes, in France. It was the kind of structure of French cooking that people Came to learn. Actually, it's still to a certain extent this way because at the French Culinary Institute in New York, now it's called ICC. Where you are one of the deans? Yes, people come there to learn that structure, which basically started in the 18th century in France, but at least there is a consensus that you cut a vegetable one way that's called a julienne, that's called a mirepoix, and so so everyone at least adhere to that consensus. But then after, when you learn those type of technique to do it properly, you leave and your name is David Chang or or Bobby Mm. Flay or Whatever or Dan Meyer, and you never do French yeah. cooking, but at least you learn that uh, that basic.
0: Well, yeah, and that's like I said your your book, La Te- technique uh, espouses that uh, that learn the technique first. But then you have a lot of very uh, accomplished chefs in America these days who never went to cooking school that's true, and, too. and never were part of that system, like you said, you were in, in Paris where you learn to do right. things the right way and that's how you do it. You don't ask questions. Um, right. is, is that a good thing or a bad thing in terms of...
1: No, it's not. I mean, look in France too. In Girardet in Switzerland mm-hmm. was a, a soccer player or whatever. Became Girardet, one of the greatest yeah. chefs, And many others. You know, there's people who have great talent. However, still in my opinion, it's easier to express your talent if you have the know-how in your hand. I mean, you know, I know a fair amount of... Uh, Pretty good chef who are very good technicians who can run a restaurant properly, and who are good, uh, nice to work with, uh, can run a kitchen, have a good food cost, and a great. Thing. And they are relatively lousy cook. You know, I mean, they do something; it's good, but never yet. However, you see someone like Thomas Keller or, or Jean Georges, then they are technicians. And then, if you happen to have talent, what you have in your hand now, you can take it to a much higher level. I mean, it's like painting, you know. Uh, You learn in a studio for three, four years how to mix yellow and blue to do green, what to do with your thumb, you know, the law of perspective and so forth. When you finish art school, you can step outside and do one painting after another. Does that make you an artist? Not really, but you have pretty good craftsmen at that point. Now, if you happen to have talent, you have... Some knowledge in your hand to take that talent somewhere.
0: You so you worked at Pavillon and a part of this French movement, and then you you took a job with Howard Johnson's at the time yes. and in the sixties. And what what was that decision process like in terms of I'm gonna leave a conventional restaurant kitchen and work for a big company and, right. and become part of a, a very sort of American movement of Big food.
1: Well, the 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 spring of 1960, summer of 1960, uh, I was offered the job at the White House, actually for Kennedy, and I was offered a job at Howard Johnson. Pierre uh, Howard D. Johnson, who Mister Johnson, who created Howard Johnson, was a client of the Pavilion, and then somehow we met. Pierre Friday and so forth, and he said, Pierre, you're going to work for me one day, and with Jacques. So we went to work for him.
0: Uh, wait, I, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, rewind. Do you ever regret not having gone to work for JFK and, and Jackie? Uh, uh, I mean,
1: I probably, you know, this is a speculative question, of course. I would not be who I am today, what I've done. I probably wouldn't be married to the same woman. Uh-huh. I have another type of life. Everything would be different. The point is.
0: That it worked out okay.
1: It worked out great. (laughs) Uh, The point is that, uh, again, considering that I was chef in France under three governments, and uh, I never had anyone coming into the kitchen to thank me. I was never called to have kudos in the dining room, too, because it did not exist. The cook was in the kitchen and stayed in the kitchen. Uh, If anyone came to the kitchen was to yell at you, something went wrong. So, you know, I had... Well, television barely existed, but I was never interviewed for a magazine, newspaper. It did not exist, not only me, but anyone. So when I was a further job at the White House, I had no idea of the potential what the White House could be. I saw that job, and I had done it. I mean, you know, I served Tito, Eisenhower, Nehru at the time, you know, and that was it. Uh, At the White House, I thought it would be the same. And actually, it was the same. You know, it was René Verdon with a friend of mine who was the sous-chef at the Essex Hours in New York, who finally got the job, and uh, through Roger Fessaguet, who was the chef at La Caravelle. And uh, so uh, when Mrs. Kennedy started taking pictures of René Verdon, you know, it was uh, mid-60s after woman liberation, organic gardening, health food store, everything, a great deal of social changes were going on. So all of a sudden, the role of the chef started changing a bit. So Howard Johnson, on the other hand, when I was a further job, it was another world that I didn't know. Mass production, organic garden, you know, uh, uh, working with, uh, with uh, uh, chemistry. You know, I learned words like uh, specific gravity or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, bacteria and, and polyform and stuff like that. your job was develop
0: dishes for the various restaurants? Or? Yeah, the various
1: restaurants, the Red Coach Grill was the division of Howard Johnson, mm-hmm. the grocery division, and so forth. And to do that in mass production and so forth, you know, I opened, when I left in 1970, I was there 10 years, 60, 70, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie, mass production. And then I opened the World Trade Center. I set up the commissary for Joe Baum. Then I was a consultant in the Russian tea room in the 80s or whatever. I'm saying that to say any of those jobs, I would never have been able to do it if I hadn't had the training of Howard Johnson in addition to my my French training so it was another world I learned about American habit uh, eating and it was a long my long uh, American apprenticeship
0: you know so you you're you're part of this sort of burgeoning food scene in in New York City and of writers and cooks and sh- uh, chefs and Talk about ingredients, because it's now like we go to a market in New York and we expect to have everything from, you know, fresh porcinis to oh, heirloom sure. tomatoes yeah. to every imported French cheese you can imagine. But what was it like back then? Because I, I grew up in the 70s. I just remember canned vegetables. I mean, oh, sure. what, what what did you buy and where did you get it?
1: Well, I live on 50th and 1st Avenue in top of a restaurant called La Toc Blanche, which actually was the sponsor. Uh, my sponsor when I came to the US. So, there I uh, we had that big apartment with my friend Jean Claude and another guy who worked at the pavilion. It was a whole floor apartment, you know, with three windows in the back, three windows on the street, wow. three big bedrooms, living room too. And we pay $75 a month, just $25 each. <laughs> you know? But anyway, going on, I think it was D'Agostino Brother when my first big supermarket in, in the US. Well, there was no leeks. there was no shallot, there was no oriental fish, there was no good olive oil. I remember going and say, "Where are the mushrooms?" Say, aisle five. That was canned mushroom. You had to go to a specialty store to get regular white button mushroom. Yeah, so and not was. even
0: not even like wild mushrooms, just your basic now, mushrooms.
1: And now you go to Sub and shop, and you have eight different types of mushroom. Most of them have no taste, but yeah. you have a lot of mushroom.
0: Um, so I mean, so what did you did you just learn to cook? With different ingredients, or would you go the extra mile to get good ingredients or
1: uh, both, but the point is that uh, there was some really terrific ingredients as well, as I said, uh, you know it was uh, not too good with vegetable, a lot of packaging packaging, but on the other hand, beautiful meat, mm-hmm. lobster, lamb, relatively inexpensive compared to the price in France, so it was a kind of potpourri, a different way of of buying, and eventually. Uh, you know, it start changing and and so forth. And uh, more so, when I used to be Hampton, we used to go to the farmer's market, you know, with Craig and Pierre. And uh, then there, the farmer's market starting having, you know, local product. Certainly fish market, to very inexpensive, clam, oyster, and so yep. forth.
0: So when, when in your mind, when did you become more of a, a public figure? Because you... I always felt that you'd been on TV forever, and that Jacques Pepin on on PBS, and and that's how I grew up knowing you. And and you were this incredibly warm and welcoming presence on TV. But you came to TV a bit later than than I think what some of us might think. You weren't on sure. TV in the '60s.
1: No, no, absolutely not. TV did not exist. You know, I met Julia in 1960. Sixty, I think, at uh, Helen McCullough Julia the Helen who was the editor of, of Michael, course. Julia yeah. Charlie, and uh, so I met Julia. Julia had never done a book; she'd never done television, and she was not the full editor of any magazine, newspaper. So no one knew her. What course. did you
0: think of her? I mean, she must have been in a, a unique presence when you met her.
1: Well, we spoke French actually uh-huh. more. Her French was better than my English at the time, and she was that thundering, you know, personality. In fact, Helen McCullough, who told me? Oh, I have that book. I want to show you that manuscript here, Uh which I looked at. She said, "I said, gee, this is pretty good. You know, this is what basically I would have wanted to do someday." And Helen told me, "Well, it's a woman from uh, California. She's coming next week. Let's cook for her." Then she's a big woman with a terrible voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was Julia. Yes, the world, the food world, was very very small. Did you did you like
0: her right away or?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah we became friends. But I was friends with James Beard too. I mean, I our- Small the food world was. I work at the Pavillon. A few months, Craig Lebon, who just started at the New York Times, came to the Pavillon to do an article on Pierre and the Pavillon, and me, and so forth. So I met Pierre. I met Craig. Craig introduced me to Helen McCalla.
0: And, and, and so, Heart and Soul is on now, along with the book, the new book, Heart and Soul Cooking uh, Cookbook. Right. Um, and you've got The Apprentice uh, out again, uh, which is your memoir, My Life in the Kitchen. A really fun book, kind of divided into two. The first half about being a young kid growing up in France yeah. uh, and then coming to America and, and meeting your wife, Gloria. And, right. and, and 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 all the amazing things you've done since then. Um uh, but before we let you go, Jacques, a thank you so much for coming. We are going to subject you to our lightning round. Oh, where we have either or questions okay. that you have to answer. Okay, uh, we'll see how you do. We're um, ready. Yes, yeah, okay. sure. Okay, omelet or scrambled? Scramble. How do you? What's your scrambled technique?
1: Uh, usually, the French way. That is working pretty fast with a whisk to get a very creamy, very. Uh, Creamy and soft texture.
0: Over what kind of heat do you do the scrambled eggs? I do. I, I do everything on high heat. High heat. Burgundy or Beaujolais? Beaujolais. <laughs> I am from Beaujolais. <laughs> Goes down easy. Um, Blue Point or Bellon? Well, Bellon. I would say I like
1: uh, iodine on my oyster and all that. So, but I love Blue Point as well.
0: And if you if you're taking your oysters raw, what do you like to put on the oysters? Anything?
1: Uh, no, but usually I'm used now to uh, to uh, something I learned in America to the the you know the sauce with the, with ketchup and oh, the, the hot cocktail sauce. Yeah, they yeah, that,
0: right? yeah. Uh, I love some cocktail sauce. Uh, Camus or Sartre? Wow,
1: both, but Camus was the one who influenced me probably the most. Uh, yes.
0: Any book in particular by him?
1: Uh, well, the Myth of Sisyphus, you mm-hmm. know, for me. Yeah. Uh, Was well, very uh,
0: kind of important. Garlic or shallot?
1: Uh, probably garlic. I like things very accented.
0: Uh, as a New Yorker, pizza or hot dog?
1: Yeah, that's a hard one.
0: I love both. You know, so I love both. One <laughs> after the other. What do you? What do you like? Anything? Any toppings on your pizza? Uh,
1: well, no, I like uh, the margarita pizza yeah. with extra cheese. Extra. You
0: know, <laughs> Dinner party or a long lunch? Dinner party. Dinner
1: party. can go into the night.
0: Okay, last question, which we always ask. Butter or olive oil?
1: That's a tough one because uh, sometimes I need butter. Sometimes I need olive oil. I would say that now I use more olive oil than butter. But at some point you need some butter.
0: (laughs) All right, Jacques Pepin, thank you very much for coming by the Bon Appetit Foodcast.
1: Thank you for having me
0: this podcast
1: is brought to you by executive producer bell cushing and project manager carrie polis with editing by mitra kaboli the theme music is by valerie and the greedies tune in every wednesday for a new episode on itunes stitcher or wherever you get your
0: podcasts thanks for listening